0: Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco, bringing you an episode of the Art and Soul of Healing. Today on the wings of Alliance for Natural Health, we will be flying to the Azores to meet with Dr. Philomena Trindade. Filomena is a board-certified family physician who finished her training at the UCSF Santa Rosa program. She has been in clinical practice for over 23 years. She also is a teacher, author, and internationally sought-after lecturer in functional medicine. Today, Philomena will be teaching us about her tiered approach to hormone assessment. Join me in welcoming Dr. Philomena Trindade.
1: You know, Jean, you don't age, oh yeah, right. you gotta tell me your secret. <laughs> I don't have any secrets. I have the same secrets you have, clean living, so
0: yeah. w- welcome Philomena to the art and soul of healing. So I believe that you are in the Azores right now Is yes. that your homeland where you grew up?
1: yeah. Yes, I was, um, I was born and raised here until I was 11, uh, at which time we immigrated to the U.S. And um, I always wanted to come back and be able to sort of live part-time here, part-time in the U.S. I didn't think it was going to be possible, but it's actually a positive thing that happened with COVID-19. Yeah. I mean, I was already uh, planning on spending more time here but then I actually got stuck here for four months. Oh, that's a bad problem to have. So which (laughs) of the islands are you on? So there's nine islands, and it's divided into three groups. The westmost, the eastmost, and the center. The center is a group of five islands, Mm -hmm. two on the south side, two on the north, more or less, and then a center one. I'm in that center one, which is called Saint George. Okay. So I can see four islands from here. Uh, for I live on the south side, so I only see two. But if I go to the north, I see the other two, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's one. I, it sounds
0: like it's so beautiful. You know, my husband and I have always wanted to tr- visit the Azores, so I'll have
1: to do that. I want to see Mount Pico, too. Oh, cool. You know, I, I was supposed to climb it this year. I've climbed it before. And, uh, you know, Jean, whenever you want to come, you have a place to stay. All it's right. A, it's like a 45-minute boat ride to Pico. Okay, well,
0: I'll take you up on that.
1: So I know you've
0: trained in the United States, all your medical training, and you've really had an interesting career in medicine. Start. You started out in conventional family medicine. How did you make that switch to integrative and functional medicine?
1: Well, Jean, to tell you the truth, I knew I always wanted to do more preventive, integrative type medicine, but I thought that I needed that basic science foundation. I wanted to have the scientific basis. And I thought that I was really going to learn how to prevent or arrest disease. And when I finished residency, I was really disappointed because I hadn't learned that. I thought I had learned how to take care of acute care problems, but not of chronic problems, which when I started nonprofit, is all that I saw. So I was really disappointed. But I started seeking out courses anywhere that I could. I had a huge debt, so that was, I needed to work on paying that back. <laughs> but at the same time, I just started searching. Mm-hmm. And in my search, I found uh, Pam Smith. She was about to start the fellowship. Uh, at the time, it was um, part of the fellowship was with IFM. Um, I got introduced to IFM there, but I actually also got introduced to IFM through a friend of mine who has since passed away who was also involved in A ACAM. And he told me, oh, you have to go to ACAM and you have to go to IFM. And he just basically threw the CD from um, uh, Jeff Bland at me and said, you got to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> that was my introduction. I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. Because up until that point, I would take a course here or a course there, but I didn't really have a tool. I didn't really know how to put it all together and how I was going to... Practice medicine in that way. And uh, IFM Matrix gave me that.
0: Yeah, it does. It's very helpful. And then was your nonprofit working with the underserved?
1: Yes, yeah, the farm workers in um, Santa Cruz County. And then um, Hollister is actually where I ended up working for several years. So uh, my hometown in in the US is Watsonville, California, which is an agricultural town. And I started working there, and then they needed a medical director. Actually, first I needed a clinical director, and then eventually I became the medical director of um, San Benito County, which is a county nearby. And there, there was only one main nonprofit clinic that took care of all the pregnant women Mm. up until 34, 36 weeks. And then we referred them to the OB. So I originally was hired to be in charge of the perinatal program. And, and then I became medical director and worked there for a few years.
0: That's a wonderful thing that you did working with the underserved. Were you able to use some of your integrative and functional medicine tools
1: in this setting, or was it pretty conventional? Well, initially, at least when I started, it was pretty conventional. But it's amazing how when you start to add things Uh, more from the integrative medicine arena and you can share with your colleagues that it's science-based or here's an article on this or this is why I gave this person zinc or this is why I put them on omega-3s. It's amazing because I initially I thought that I was going to be met with sort of resistance and um, no you can't do that but maybe because I was in the underserved arena we were used to doing sort of non-conventional things it sort of just caught on And then um, I I was in charge of three PAs, um, the nurse practitioner, a um, nutritionist, and there was um, a pediatrician and then two other docs. And some of them were more receptive than others, but especially like the PAs and the nurse practitioners, they just stayed it up. They're like, oh, we want to know more. And we were also a site for training PAs and nurse practitioners through the Stanford program. And uh, it was amazing because, you know, it's sort of fresh minds. Um, I feel like the more that we're doing something that's a little bit different, even if it's science-based, sort of the more support or the more interest there is in that area, it kind of drives us. At least it drove me to want to know even more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When you're teaching, I, I was able to teach nurse practitioners, PAs, residents, medical students, et cetera, while I was at KU Medical Center. And they get so excited because they don't get this in their uh, basic underpinning of their education. It's such a tragedy.
1: Just even simple nutrition. I know. It's, it's almost like what you put in your mouth, uh, even though we know how it shapes you, um, it doesn't get taken into account. It's almost like it doesn't matter. And we now, of course, know different, but we do. It's sad that it's not being adopted into medical education. I think that's really the saddest part.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually taken a step backwards. When I started at KU Med in the late 90s, we were able to teach nutrition in the regular medical student courses. And now they said, oh, we just don't have time for that. So, wow, maybe. Yeah, take, taken out two hours, three hours, you know, that's it. And it's all, oh, vitamin A will kill you kind of stuff.
1: Well, where's your main practice currently? I, I would still say it's still my U.S. practice, uh-huh. um, even though I'm doing everything online. Uh-huh. Um, I also have a small practice here. I'm not quite ready to have a practice here in a way. I used to have a clinic in, um, in the mainland, but it got to be too much. You know, I, I realized that in order to sort of take care of my adrenals, especially, or my HPA axis, I needed to slow down. Yeah. So I started teaching more and I gave up that clinic. Here in the island, um, I, I sort of work out of my garage. I change my garage into a little office, but I'm in the process of building a um, healing center. Okay, Where I already purchased the land. And I have a couple investors, I'm looking for a third investor, because I want to make it um, not just the center for here, right, because we're isolated. And, and uh, with socialized medicine, sometimes the queue is pretty long. And when you're in a isolated island, I feel like the medical care could be better, because you know we could evacuate people a little bit earlier, we could have more contact, especially with the video, with some of the subspecialties, mm-hmm. which doesn't happen as much. So I want to cater sort uh, of the acute care as well as chronic care using the functional medicine model. Oh, that's great. And uh, I wanted to be sort of a location where other people come for healing because it'll be like a resort. But then we also take care of the locals.
0: Okay, very good. And when you evacuate to the mainland, you're talking about Portugal.
1: No, actually, most evacuations are not to the mainland. There are two summits to the uh, islands with bigger facilities. Okay, we only have health centers, which behave as makeshift hospitals, but really they're health centers. And then um, some of the other islands, like, for example, we don't have CT scan facilities or MRI on my island, but the next island over does, which is a 20 minute, 25 minute um, airplane ride. So in many cases, they have to get shipped either there or to San Miguel, which is an even bigger island. But I feel like some of those things we could have here. The problem is that You need to have someone that knows how to you know a technician that knows how to do it and then you don't necessarily have to have someone that interprets it because you know with video conferencing you can have someone on hand but unfortunately that hasn't quite been adopted Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. the traditional system
0: yeah well they they're so expensive those pieces of equipment the mris and cts so it does make sense to send people out plus what you're doing is so uh, important in discovering things instead of just relying on testing. I mean, you and I both know that physical exam is just not that important to people in conventional medicine anymore. No, you know what I, mean?
1: I have to tell you, I learned my physical exam skills working in the third world. I was working in Guatemala, working with uh, comadronas, which are the traditional midwives, and helping them um, sort of with hospital procedures or so that they wouldn't be afraid to refer because um, Guatemala is the country that has the highest anencephalic births.
0: Oh, I didn't know and that.
1: They, yeah, because it's such a high rate of anencephaly, in many cases, both mom and baby. Of course, baby's not viable, right? But in many cases, the mom also dies um, because they, they get referred to the hospital too late. So my project was to teach the traditional midwives how to refer and not be afraid because they weren't really accepted by the medical system um, and to, so that they could refer them early. So they could learn to recognize it early and refer them and know that someone at the hospital was going to receive them well. And, um, but I ended up not just, I worked on my project, but through the process of going to very rural areas and working, you know, with the traditional midwives, I ended up seeing patients that were sick mm-hmm. and I learned to really be very good at my skills, which I didn't have, but it forced me to look it up and say, okay, what does this sign mean? You know, when their skin looks like this, what does that mean? When the nails are like in this, you know, in this state, what does that mean? And then I found all the work of mostly some of the naturopaths as well as Michael Stone, you know, who's just amazing at clinical evaluation skills. And that is really helped and he
0: learned his in the third world too, the physical exam.
1: Yeah, and he also has, of course, a nutritional background, so he's always been mm-hmm. interested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's amazing how much you can tell or how much body can tell you if you know what to look for.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And patients, I think, really appreciate it.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I have patients that uh, usually I, I try to do as much as I can on my first visit. You know, I'm seeing someone new. And I'll say, well, your body is telling me this and this and this. And they're usually really shocked uh, because well, we're going to get some labs to verify, but this is what I think is going on. And more often than not, I'm correct. But they just never had that experience, you know, where someone could actually do a thorough physical exam and say, this is what I think is going on. I feel like we rely way too much on laboratory values. And, you know, laboratory values don't tell you necessarily what if it's normal function, they give you a parameter, they give you a reference range. It's up to us to look at the literature and then interpret it, which unfortunately doesn't always happen.
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. So your chapter in the Integrative and Functional Medicine Nutrition Therapy textbook was entitled Nutritional Influences on Hormonal Health. I, You know, I was really fortunate to hear you lecture around this topic Um, in the integrated Cardiovascular Workshop put on by Mark Houston. So I really got a true flavor of what you meant by or how you're supposed to evaluate hormonal imbalances. So this has really colored my approach. So you have a very specific protocol. You call it a symphony and a hierarchy in approaching hormonal health. Can you describe this? Because I think people need to understand this.
1: Sure, I, you know I still have a hard time with people accepting this uh, because it's a little bit of different way of thinking. Um, but it makes a lot of sense, and I feel like if that's if you use it in clinical practice, you can really get to the root cause and fix you know many different um, problems within. Sort of the not just the restorative genic pathway, but within the body in general. So I see um, hormones sort of this way. I see insulin as a major hormone that has a lot of downstream effects on some of the other hormones. So my approach is look at insulin first. It doesn't mean we don't also look at what's happening with the adrenals and the HPA axis and thyroid and the sex hormones, and then of course I also add on estrogen metabolism because I think that's key, especially when we're looking at avoiding. Um, chronic disease or even cancer. But I think insulin needs to be looked at first because it has more downstream effects than all the other hormones and vice versa. It's a symphony. So everybody's sort of playing together. But um, I feel like we need to look at the major hormones. And if we start there, for example, there's a lot of people walking around that are insulin resistant. But most of our colleagues are waiting for them to become pre-diabetics or diabetics to treat them. Yeah, if we can reverse the insulin resistance, we can reverse the downstream effects, be it on the HP axis or on the thyroid or on the sex hormones.
0: Well, can you describe insulin resistance? Uh, It's a term that maybe some people aren't familiar with or don't really truly understand.
1: Well, even even in the literature, there's still some um, (laughs) sort of (laughs) miscommunication. So, insulin resistance is basically early, early on, like pre pre diabetes. It's when your Pancreas starts to uh, produce insulin, but the insulin isn't functioning. Or, in other words, it's still not able to, in general, keep your blood sugar normal. But even before that happens, there is a um, sort of a trigger or a damage or something happens, uh, particularly to the pancreas and the pancreatic beta cell, that causes overproduction of the insulin. So it's believed, and this is especially through the work of Barbara Corky, that. Uh, first you have hyperinsulinemia. So you have too much insulin and that that can be the leading cause of insulin resistance. So in other words, meaning that the insulin doesn't function, the pancreas doesn't necessarily know that. And so it continues to produce more and more insulin because type two diabetes is too much insulin, right? Mm -hmm. Unlike Mm -hmm. type Mm one, as you know, which is an autoimmune condition where you're not making insulin. But the problem is that the insulin um, isn't functioning. And um, we also know that aside from changes in the pancreas itself that can lead to hyperinsulinemia and the hyperinsulinemia itself can lead to insulin resistance, you can also have changes in the gut microbiome that can lead to insulin resistance through various different mechanisms. With the microbiota itself or the uh, lipopolysaccharide or the ability of the um, gut microbiota to convert, you know, our bile acids. So there's basically you can think of it. Even just increases in oxidative stress can lead to insulin resistance. But the part that I feel is really important, and I think that most of my colleagues still don't get, is that when you have a da- when you have damage to the pancreatic beta cell, be it due to a lack of a nutrient or too much of something like high fructose corn syrup, for example, or a toxin or an infection, um, that when you have damage to the pancreatic beta cell, the way it responds is by making more insulin. And just the overproduction of insulin itself can lead to insulin resistance, in addition to there's other pathways, but that being a major one. And initially, uh, when you're producing, let's say, uh, the insulin, you may be able to keep your um, blood sugar completely normal, your fasting insulin might even be normal. But the first thing that actually increases is when we're challenged with a high glucose meal or or a meal with a high glucose load. Because sometimes it's not just sugar, right? It can be things that our body will see as sugar. And uh, so that when that happens, if you're just measuring your fasting insulin, It may be normal, but you still could be insulin resistant because you need that challenge. It's only when you look at it after a meal. So it's really important that we also look at insulin postprandially, like half an hour or an hour or two hours after eating. Well, who's at risk? Is is it
0: all genetic or is there a a food component to it?
1: What's possible is more food. Mm -hmm. I I believe that one of the reasons why we see such high rates of insulin resistance, such high rates of obesity is really due to food. So what we put in our mouths as well as our lifestyle and lack of exercise too, because unfortunately it happens, but also the high amounts of stress that sort of we're living in. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact that, you know, we're living in a more and more, polluted environment or world. Absolutely. Yes. Those
0: endocrine disruptors are certainly at, you know, playing havoc with people. So can you tell a difference in the Azores compared to your patient population in California, let's say, did you see?
1: Yeah, I do, but it's quickly, um, it's quickly changing. So <laughs> when I first started coming back like about 15 years ago, there was really not much obesity at all uh, and compared to in the U S it's like, I would always be shocked because I, I get here and, you know, go to a restaurant or grocery shopping or something. And I realize, wow, people are still pretty lean. And, um, and you don't see a lot of those, uh, uh, what's it called? Muffin tops. <laughs> uh, and, but now I'm it's starting, we're starting to see more and more. And a lot of it, I think too, is, you know the U.S. is a huge influence all over the world. Yeah, unfortunately, dietarily unfortunate. <laughs> yes, yes. And so when people think, see things on TV or or they see shows and they realize, oh, this is what's you know being what well, this is like the latest fad that's being used. Everyone wants to imitate it. So we're losing some of our more traditional habits, particularly with respect to diet and food, and then adopting. Some of the more, the more unhealthy ones, like I see so much soda being used, and you know, in the U.S. we've used high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. hasn't been hasn't happened here, but something else has happened here, which is that non-caloric sweeteners have been added, and they're, they're and many times they're not on the label. They're on the ingredients if you look, right? But if you just look at the label, it doesn't say light or it doesn't say sugar-free, like you do in the U.S. So you can have A lot of these non-caloric sweeteners, which, by the way, can lead to also to insulin resistance. And if you're not really careful, you're ingesting them and you're not even aware. Yeah,
0: that's so shocking, isn't it? So how do you treat, uh, how do you approach your patients with insulin resistance?
1: Uh, Well, first, let me answer a question you asked earlier and I didn't answer it completely. And that is that everybody's at risk, right? We used to think that uh, it mostly happened to people who are obese. It's not the case. I actually think that one of the reasons for the high rates of obesity is due to insulin resistance, and it's not just based on my work, but you know, there's many other researchers that agree. Um, but I think I have sort of a four-pronged approach, if you will, and uh, I like the rule of three, so I kind of divided it, or I, I should say I made it more succinct into three. And that is really number one, is it has to start with diet. And I, just, I don't like using the word diet, so I, I usually say nutrition, what you put in your mouth, right? Because um, there's many things that we can include in our diet that actually decreases insulin resistance and increases insulin sensitivity. And these are things like not just nuts and seeds and, and fermented foods, which I always have my patients ferment their own food. Um, but there's things like spices and herbs, uh, for example. You can look at rosemary or basil or thyme, and you can add that more to your salad. And We know that not only does it decrease inflammation in general, but it can increase insulin, insulin sensitivity. It can help insulin actually work better by working on a certain receptor. And the same thing with spices, things like cinnamon and nutmeg and cardamom. You know, these are all things that in the U.S. I feel like we're sort of not used to using a lot but we have to educate our patients to purposely reintroduce them and put it in everything, whether it's your breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You know, I have my patients add it to their nuts and, you know, put all these different spices, including ginger and nutmeg and cinnamon, and, you know, get used to sort of having more of that flavor because I think in general, the standard American diet or the horrible American diet, whatever you want to call it, is also very bland. Uh-huh. You know, aside from being devoid void of nutrients, it's pretty bland. So in many cases, they're not used to ingesting sort of that different those different flavors. And it can, can be fun. And then my other thing is when I talk about food, I always say you have to look at things and like servings. To me, it's the easiest way. I can explain it to you whether you know you are a farm worker or you know you're CEO of a company. If I tell you a serving of a cooked vegetables is half a cup, if you're talking about lettuce, a cup would be a serving. And I want you to have ten to 12 of those. And the next question, you know, when their eyes get really big, it's like, well, how am I going to do that? I'm like, well, it's simple because you're going to learn to make soups. And, you know, you can have a bowl of soup and that could be already four or five servings because you're going to, you can cream it, for example, or you can put lots of different vegetables. And then I want you to eat fruit because contrary to popular belief, uh, fruit does not necessarily increase your insulin resistance, right? Because there's so many antioxidants in food. Fruit juices are a different story. But fruit in itself, you would want to eat those that have sort of the highest phytonutrients but that don't increase your sugar. So like your lower glycemic load fruits. And I usually say, you know, you can have two servings per day without really worrying about it making your blood sugar worse because if, even if you're diabetic, we have the studies. We actually have studies that compared like eating a cookie uh, versus a piece of fruit. And we've shown that with fruit, even if it was sweeter than the cookie, because it has so many other phytonutrients in it, it's actually going to work to lower your blood sugar and decrease your insulin resistance. And
0: that's not the message that the sugar lobby wanted us to hear, is it? (laughs) Well, then what are the other components? You talked about diet,
1: Right, so it's food and then lifestyle. Really looking at where does your stress come from, because you know it's just stress in itself can lead to insulin resistance. I remember being in a nonprofit and I had a lot of type two diabetics, and I remember them coming in and saying, uh, you know, bring it in their blood sugar and saying, I know they're high, and they're high because I've been really stressed because such and such happened, or you know, my my daughter has been having been fighting with her husband and she's moving in, or you know, whatever. But that's a common one. And, uh, and you know, I know it's a stress that makes my blood sugar higher and it's true, but I don't feel like we've had that much emphasis on that. Right. We've true. had of emphasis on what do you treat? What drugs do you give next versus let's get to the root cause and let's see, maybe we can't change the situation. Um, but maybe we can change how your body reacts to that situation. Maybe there's some tools that I can teach you that will help lessen the effect of stress on the body. That's a major one. That is. And then the other is looking at what do we do with the gut microbiota? Because the gut microbiota is just amazing. There's so many things that we can do that will actually help you decrease insulin resistance. And it's not probiotics. Although probiotics are important, the most important thing, we're back to diet. We know that we can actually change the composition of the gut microbiota in a good way within 24 hours with what we put in our mouths, especially fiber and, and in particular, soluble fiber
0: yeah, absolutely and uh, we we're big fermented food people in this family so I, i'm gonna Great. do a shout out for that well then yeah. you move up the ladder to adrenal dysfunction um, can you tell us what you
1: mean by adrenal dysfunction Sure, so the the adrenals are these two organs that are like little kidney beans on top of the kidneys. And they're responsible for making all our steroid hormones. Starting from cholesterol, they're able to make pregnenolone, your DHEA, as well as your sex hormones. Uh, But they also make the stress hormones, especially cortisol, adrenaline, and adrenaline. And whenever we're stressed, that is what gets affected, right the adrenals, but also the way that the adrenals communicate with the brain, especially um, the hypothalamus and the pituitary and what we now know is that if someone has had a difficult childhood, uh, and I'm talking about like the ACEs studies right the um, the um, studies that looked at children that had adverse um, upbringing or had an adverse childhood and how that can predispose you to be also on this so, sort of a hyper alert state and when you're doing that you're living with higher amounts of cortisol and cortisol is very catabolic right? it, it breaks things down and I always say cortisol brings around its buddy insulin and <laughs> <laughs> so if, you're, if your system is stressed, and it doesn't mean that you're under a lot of psychological stress at this current time, it could be something that happened to you in your childhood um, or just earlier on. But we need to look at just what state or how much reserve do we have. And we used to call it just adrenals. Well, well now we know it's really the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's the HPA axis but because they're constantly in communication. But... There are so many things that we can do to sort of tone down um, the sort of messages that our adrenals get or, or to help them sort of settle down and realize that there's help and that there's ways that we can sort of decrease the effects in our body. And I'm talking about food, of course, is always the foundation, but there's a lot of adaptogenic herbs that help decrease either the communication or they actually the effect. So the effect of a high cortisol, for example, whether it's on your heart or it's on your kidneys or it's on your skin in general, um, these are herbs that are able to modulate sort of our our responses to stress.
0: Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we
1: have our nutraceuticals that I didn't mention, but also work for insulin resistance. They're also really important in maintaining good adrenal health.
0: Well, I love the phrase that you use, overspend your adrenal reserves and find yourself broke. So what happens to the system when stress becomes chronic?
1: Well, depending on how big your reserve, I always talk about the adrenal sort of adrenal bank account. And that one, Gene, I can talk about personally as well as professionally. (laughs) I can too. (laughs) Because it's like when you overspend, right? When you spend more money than you have in your bank account, when you're burning the can on both ends and you're doing too much, as you know, then we sort of lose our reserve. And when that happens, we can become very inflammatory and we can become more prone to, to different diseases. So it's really all about, you can think of the adrenal, adrenal reserve as sort of your, the hormones that can, that can modulate stress, but also help us with decreasing inflammation and having a um, sort of a better uh, ability to respond to invaders or whatever it is that, that we're sort of bombarded with, whether it's an infection or it's a toxin.
0: So how important is lab testing in your treatment approach at this juncture?
1: So for, a, for you mean specifically for adrenals and your HPA axis? Yes. Well, I use a lot of laboratory um, testing, but there's also a really good questionnaire that was developed by James Wilson before there was a lot of testing available. Or at least you tried to do it so that um, just based with this questionnaire, you could get an idea of which stage of you know, adrenal dysfunction someone was in. And uh, it's actually part of his book called uh, Adrenal Fatigue in the 20th Century, I think, or something like that. I know it's Adrenal Fatigue, and it's by James Wilson. And um, what he did is, he basically went through a series of different questions to figure out, um, are you high cortisol, or are you high but you're starting to lose your resistance, or I should say your resilience, or are you low cortisol? So I use that questionnaire quite a bit. And sometimes, you know, just asking someone, are you stressed and wired? Are you stressed and tired? Are you just fatigued and worn out? You can get an idea. But the salivary testing is also really helpful because you actually get to see throughout the day you know, where someone is. And when we look at saliva, we look at cortisol as well as DHEA because we use DHEA as to give us an idea of what's that catabolic-anabolic balance like. right? Because cortisol is very... Um, catabolic which means it's very break it helps break down and in in metabolism you know we're constantly breaking things down and rebuilding right so we want to make sure that we have enough to be able to rebuild you can also look at um do testing in the serum but the saliva is better because we can look at it throughout the day and you don't have the effect of having a needle stuck on your arm you know to be able to to see what the cortisol levels like
0: mm-hmm and then you move up the ladder to um, thyroid support. And so many people start here without focusing on insulin resistance and adrenal health first. Can can you tell us a little bit more about this next step?
1: Sure. So I, I feel like if you address uh, insulin and adrenals, in many cases, you may not need to address the thyroid because it may be fixed, especially if it's early on. Um, but. I think that most people feel comfortable addressing it because it is sort of the way we are trained, right? We're trained in acute care medicine, conventional medicine, so it's like, what can I do? Instead of looking at sort of the whole picture and see what's really going on. But um, I feel like thyroid, we're seeing a lot more uh, problems with especially autoimmune thyroid diseases or Hashimoto's because to me, the thyroid is sort of like the Boy Scout. It's sort of what sticks its, head, its neck out. And, and we know in terms of looking at your immune system and your immune health, and, um, and in general, but I feel like um, there's a lot more um, thyroid conditions that you, that patients present with where, where their um, laboratory values can be within the reference range, for example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of times it's because it's a, it's a nutrient deficiency, for example, um, our, our thyroid makes mostly T4. It only makes about 5% T3, but only T3 is the active hormone that can actually get inside the cell and do work. But in traditional medicine or in conventional medicine, all that we're looking at usually is TSH, which is the thyroid stimulating hormone. It's what is the pituitary telling the thyroid to do. But if the thyroid makes T4 and it's the T3 that's active and it has to be converted to T3 mostly in the liver and the kidneys, it's like, how do you know that it's really working optimally if you're only looking at TSH? Yeah.
0: So the conversion of T4 to the active T3 is important, as you just stated. And it's through this activity of the deiodinase enzyme.
1: What inhibits this, conver- this enzyme conversion? Well, stress for one. So high levels of cortisol can inhibit it. Uh, heavy metals can do it as well. Uh, in, in, in order for that conversion to, ha- to happen, you need physiological doses of some, certain hormones. But if they're too high, then it can't happen. For example, if cortisol is high, the T3 gets converted to reverse T3. I always think of it as it sort of gets stuck and it can't... Um, it gets stuck in that conversion, it doesn't go to T3. But we also need a lot of cofactors for that to happen. That deiodinase enzyme is um, it, it requires quite a few different cofactors. Number one, it is selenium dependent. So if you don't have selenium, it can't work. But it needs a lot of other things that I divide into the The vitamins, the minerals, and the hormones. So it needs physiological levels of some hormones. It needs good amounts of vitamin A vitamin D. But you also need like all your B vitamins, for example. And in addition, you need um, some iron as well as zinc. And we've talked about selenium, which means it's dependent on selenium, but it also uses these others as cofactors. So then we're back to looking at food. And a lot of those... Uh, Nutrients are also nutrients that are important for insulin resistance or for reversing insulin resistance. So if you're looking upstream, you end up fixing a lot of things downstream. And then one other thing too is um, I feel like uh, more and more I'm seeing uh, patients with positive antibodies to the thyroid. So when you look at uh, TPO, thyroid peroxidase or antithyroglobulin antibodies, and um, if the function is normal so if the thyroid actual function is normal then the they're usually disregarded and i feel like that is a big window because if you're seeing antibodies already that means that we're on that spectrum or sort of on that road to developing an autoimmune condition and if you can approach it or sort of treat it at that level and figure out well why do they develop antibodies I always look to Alessio Fasano's work for this because he says, in order for us to develop an autoimmune spectrum condition, that we need to have three things. Uh, genetic predisposition is one. We need a trigger, so something in the environment. He, he initially talked, to this, talked about this with respect to celiac disease, but then he went on and said, well, this really applies to any autoimmune condition. And a trigger can be an infection, it can be a toxin, it can be a um, nutrient deficiency, it can be too much of something, right? For example, too much high fructose corn syrup could do it. And then we also um, need to address what's going on at the level of the intestine, because it says usually you have increased permeability in the gut. We may not be able to change our genes, but we can fix a leaky gut, and usually we can remove the trigger. So, if we can do that when someone has developed antibodies to the thyroid, in many cases we can reverse it before they get to a full blown autoimmune condition.
0: Well, again, how do you use lab testing for
1: thyroid? for thyroid, I actually do pretty extensive testing. Mm-hmm. There are there's a thyroid questionnaire that's actually put out by the Institute for Functional Medicine that I also use, um, and I also use a lot of physical exam skills because if someone subjectively complains to me that they're constipated and then they have really dry skin, you know, they're losing the outer third of their eyebrows, you know, those are all signs that um, are are indicative of thy- of low thyroid function. But here, I use a lot of testing because to 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 see if someone has antibodies or not, I find that, that for that I rely on the, um, on the laboratory evaluation. So I'll usually look at TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, and then the antibodies. And I do both. I do anti um, thyroperoxidase thyr- or TPO as well as anti thyroglobulin. Because uh-huh. in some patients you may have one and not the other, and in others you may have both.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very helpful. When do you intervene with thyroid hormone?
1: Well, I usually intervene depending on, um, number one, how bad the situation is, because even if it's due to a deficiency, I may want to start um, thyroid hormone just to have someone feeling better, even though I'm looking at the whole cascade. So I'm looking at insulin as well as adrenal. Um, but in many cases, if we've really fixed the insulin resistance and we address the adrenals, in many cases, and we've given all the precursors that are needed. Right? So, all the cofactors and the nutrients, it may get better. But in some cases, it may not. In, in other words, some cases, they may need a hormone. So, it depends on what level they're at, what their complaints are, and how much I've done when I start. For example, if someone has uh, mostly the problem with converting T4 to T3, and maybe all they need is selenium and zinc, that may be, that may be all. Right. But if it's more than that or if it's autoimmune and it's been going on for a long time, they may need the hormone replacement at the same time or at least started gradually while you're fixing the underlying problems.
0: Isn't it great to deliver personalized medicine instead of this one size? Here's your prescription. Yeah.
1: You know, Dean, sometimes what I think is um, sometimes I can't help but envy some of my colleagues (laughs) Not in a good way, I have to say, not in a good way because um, the way that they practice medicine and the way I was originally taught too is if it doesn't fit in this black box, it doesn't exist. Right? And it's almost like a recipe. Right? And you and I are cooks so it's like we know if you just follow this recipe then that's what you do. But the human body isn't that way and no two people are alike. But I have many patients that come to me and say, well, you know, I went to this specialist and they just said, do this and this and this. And I'm like, well, yeah, they're, they're basically following that recipe, but they're not personalizing it to you and to what you need, nor have they really figured out how you came to be this way. Right. Which is the question we need to
0: always ask. How did you get here? Exactly. So finally, the last rung on your ladder uh, is the sex steroid hormone. so why is this the last step because you know the actual
1: last step is, is how you metabolize those hormones but second to last so why well because in the steroidogenic pathway um those are come later right and so there's more that can happen upstream that can affect them so insulin can affect your um your estrogen your testosterone for example but changes in the adrenals can too and so can changes in the thyroid. So the way I, I devised this was I was thinking predominantly about women especially, not that men aren't important, but I was really thinking about what happens with women as we age and the fact that we see more and more PMS and that a lot of that can be due to stress. So it's upstream. It could be insulin resistance, but it can be Stress at the level of the HPA axis, where the precursors that should be going down to make progesterone, especially in the first 14 days of the cycle, they're sort of being robbed or they're being diverted into the glucocorticoids or the cortisol or the steroid pathway. That um, when that happens, in many cases, that can, they can develop PMS or someone is highly stressed. So I was thinking about that as well as as we get older, right, when um, we approach that perimenopausal period what happens in conventional medicine is they'll just look and say oh well you know you're just starting to go through the change but really a lot of times it's upstream it's that they're insulin resistant and insulin resistance can affect your 1720 lyase and that can lead to you know increasing your testosterone for example and so if we start to look upstream we can identify those hormone imbalances much earlier on and there's I look at them later because there's more things that can affect them. And uh, also too, you know, I see a lot of women that come in at about 35, 38 years old that are already having hormone imbalances. And the answer is not to put them on hormone replacement. The answer is to figure out why. Are they having an unovulatory cycles, for example? Why are they? Do they lose their testosterone because they were so stressed? Or, um, you know, what's happened with their progesterone? So if you can look at it from an upstream sort of point of view, you can really help restore balance without having to put them on a hormone. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question comes out again. How do you test for these sex steroid hormones? How do you like to test for them?
1: So it depends sort of where, uh, how old they are and where they're at. Uh, I like testing in saliva because I can look at the free hormone uh, but sometimes insurance may not allow that. Uh, most of these nowadays you actually can get covered by insurance, but, uh, even though you're doing them in the saliva, but what I'll do is I'll also look at them in the serum and I look at when they peak. So for example, if I'm looking at estrogen and testosterone and someone's still having periods, I know that, uh, estrogen peaks usually days 10, 11, or 12 of their cycle. So from the first day that they bleed, that's considered day one. Around day 10, 11, or 12, estrogen or estradiol will peak, and so I can draw it then. Whereas progesterone should peak around days 19, 20, or 21, and then I can drop progesterone then testosterone it varies usually I, I draw it when i also look at S, at the estradiol but if, if it's someone who's not having a period it's too hard to tell and for those i really like doing like a 28 day saliva test You don't collect every day for 28 days. You only collect 12 of those days, but you're doing it over 28 days, so you can get an idea. Is it that their estrogen is going up, but the egg is not coming out of the follicle, so the progesterone doesn't go up? And then what's happening throughout the cycle. So it really gives you an idea of exactly what's going on with that particular person.
0: It's very elegant. And you mentioned earlier metabolism or breakdown of these hormones. Particularly estrogen. Can you
1: elaborate on that? Sure. So this is a big interest of mine, Jane, because um, I feel like this is one area that we could really, really affect um, cancer risk in both women and men, but particularly in women. Although it's also re- also important for men and prostate cancer, for example. But it's how we break down those hormones and what can affect those pathways. So we know that, for example, and there's two phases of detoxification in our liver, and it happens in our other organs, not just the liver, but it can happen in our ovaries, for example, or our kidneys, although predominantly the organ of detoxification is the liver. So there's, three, there's two stages, or two phases, I should say, phase one and phase two. In phase one, there's three different pathways that, that estrogen can go, right? And uh, So I just call them the good, the bad, and the ugly. So one is more favorable, which is two, the two pathway, and the other one not so favorable, the 16, and then the third being sort of the worst of the three, uh, or the ugly, and that's the four. Now, those can be determined genetically. So genetically, we can have a single nucleotide polymorphism. That means we're going to use one of those more. The four was always thought to be the least active or a minor pathway. But the fact is that it is becoming more of a major pathway. One, because we can have genetic changes that make it primary. But the other is because of the, uh, our, something you said earlier, which is our high rates of exposure to endocrine disruptors or xenoestrogens or fake estrogens, because even though we may not have a a genetic mutation that says you're using the four, if you have high exposure to things like bisphenol A or the phthalates, then you're going to use that pathway preferentially, because a lot of these endocrine disruptors, they're fake hormones in the sense that they act like our own hormones. And they don't act like it just by binding to the same receptor, which is what we originally thought. And we know that some of them don't bind to it very, sort of very tightly, but actually with the way that they affect us is by changing how we metabolize our hormones. And so when you're using the four pathway, that pathway can lead to changes in our DNA and it can actually be sort of the instigator for a cancer down the line or a hormone related condition, because we know it's not just cancers, but it can also be fibroids, for example, or adenomyosis. And so I feel like if we, and by the way, there's lots of literature on this, it's just not being applied, unfortunately, in clinical practice, because I feel like looking at how someone breaks down their hormones or their the metabolism can really go a long way to helping them decrease their risk of a hormone-related condition or a cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem true. is that the, there's been a big emphasis in looking at the 2 and the 16, or the 2 to 16 ratio, yes. Yes, which true. can be done in the urine or can be done in the serum. But that doesn't tell you anything about the 4, right? And even though people say, well, if the 2 to 16 ratio is good because the 2 is protective, you're fine. Well, no, that's not exactly true because the 2 is only protective if it gets methylated, which is phase 2. So phase two are those conjugation reactions like methylation, glucuronidation, glutathione conjugation. Which for uh, estrogen, the main, the two main ones we think about are methylation and then glutathione conjugation. Because we know that even if you're not methylating that 4-hydroxy to a 4-methoxy, we the glutathione can prevent the DNA adduct formation. But I think glucuronidation is also important, even though. We don't have a lot of those studies yet. We
0: don't. There isn't a lot of information on that. Yeah. So your systematic approach to these interconnected systems is something we all need to understand. So I, I hope you keep teaching and keep sharing this because this writing in the Integrative and Functional Medicine Nutrition Therapy textbook was is seminal. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, Thank you, Jean. It was such a great opportunity. to to work with you. I really appreciate that. Well, I have
0: one last question for you. What are you doing for fun on Azores?
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I go swimming every day. I love it. And then um, I do a lot of hiking. And um, I have a garden, a vegetable garden. Well, I have a, a flower garden, but I work more on my vegetable garden. And so I spend a little bit of time every day. And right now it's been pretty dry. So I've actually had to irrigate it quite a bit. But it's a lot of fun. I, um, oh, I love it. So I always fun. feel like this is how I get my adrenals, my adrenal reserve back. Yes. So you have to come visit me.
0: I will do that. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Jean. It's my pleasure.
0: Thank you, Philomena. That was certainly a fascinating topic. And I so appreciate your knowledge around the tiered approach to hormone assessment and treatment. And a special shout-out to the Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms. Become a member today.